Hey, good morning, church family. Good morning. Look at you turning out for the cold weather. We like it. At first, early on, we're like, no one's coming. No one's coming. Oh, yeah, wait. It's cold. That means they're going to be coming later. Right? Yeah, cold, relative. Um, anywho, I know it's actually pretty funny being a, an ex-Minnesotan. I'm just going to say an ex-Minnesotan. Like, this feels pretty pathetic to say that I'm cold. I'm just, just going to be honest. Like, I feel pretty pathetic. So, hey, friends up north, I know some of you are watching. I know. I've converted. Um, and your name is Brandon Ziski, lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. If you are new, visiting with us, glad to have you to our online family. Hey, church, maybe just shout out good morning to our online family. Can we give them a round of applause? Yeah, we love you. We appreciate that you're checking in. Um, a little bit about who we are as a church. Um, you hear it quite often from us. It's, it's what we focus on. We strive to be simply all about Jesus because we believe that when you encounter him, it literally changes everything. And that's why we do all that we can in our power as a church to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus because ultimately at the end of the day, that's what matters. Now, two quick things that I want to highlight before we get into God's word this morning. Um, one is um, next Sunday, Okay, I don't, I don't care what you have on your schedule next Sunday at 10 a.m. You're going to cancel it and you're going to say, be at church. Okay, if that means you got to be here or online, it doesn't matter if you're traveling. You just do something illegal and put it on in your car. Okay, like you, I want you to be here because next Sunday, it's a special Sunday. Um, our friends from Africa New Life, I know you can't see it because it's gray on black. But our friends from Africa New Life are going to be here, and Pastor Charles from Rwanda will be preaching. And he's going to be preaching on Daniel chapter 3 about Shadrach, Meshach, and Medical being the fire, and his sermon's going to be on fire. Okay, did you see how lame that was? Come on, I'm just trying to wake up. But it's also going to be an important Sunday because it's going to be what they call a dream Sunday. You're going to have an opportunity to sponsor kids. Okay, now here's why this is important. If you were with us last December... We committed to African New Life to building their new church building in another town. And then when they do that, when they plant a church, they build a building, that gives them an opportunity to reach more children, to have more children to sponsor. And because of COVID and all things that happened, they haven't been able to usually fill their quota this year with children in, in sponsoring children. So I told Charles, I said, hey, come You'll be surprised. I believe God will do something. And so church, I want to encourage you, be here. Not only that, but Dan, uh, Patrick, uh, Charles is going to be preaching. It's going to be a great message, but also to open up our hearts to respond in compassion to those around the world. So I want to do that. Also, I want to um, give you a heads up. I know some of you saw the email and you're going to get more information about this. We're going to be moving into our next phase, into our transition of our worship time together as a family. It's been our heartbeat from day one. We've been saying three words that we want to be safe, smart, and gospel-driven in our approach to how we engage together as a Christian community for worship. On December 6th, we're going to be moving back inside, okay? And there's going to be protocols and all the things. It's going to be very safe. It's going to be very smart. It's going to be gospel-driven, like all the things that we've been doing. But really, we just feel the Lord leading us in this capacity. We want to provide an opportunity for our children to start to learn about Jesus again. Not to say that they couldn't hear. Eileen and her team has been doing a phenomenal job. But we also, yeah, we also know, okay, we also know that 
as fun as this has been, as great as this has been, and it's been awesome, that we're like, man, we don't want to mess this up. But we also know that it's hard to engage in worship when you got little ones and they're running around. So we, we want to provide an opportunity, but we also want to provide a space for us as a church family to worship in a way where there's not a lot of distractions. You know, is the sun moving? Is it cold? Come on, like all of the things that are there. So we want to encourage you to do that. And if you don't feel safe and ready to go inside, listen, we understand that as well. We're still going to have our online service streaming at that time. It'll be from inside. And just, you know, watch to see what happens. And, and we believe that with the protocols and the things, God will do what he needs to do within our church. And so December 6, 10 a.m., same time, we'll be going inside. News and information to follow from our communication team. Now, We've been in the series, this is week three of the series called His is, Yours is the Kingdom and talking about how really like no matter what happens in our context, things can change and shift and it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is on his throne. We ought to know like Daniel knew that God is in control of who is in control. And we've been wrestling with some of these things, especially in light of all of the stuff that's been unfolding right before our eyes. This series has been planned before any election results, so none of this is leaning to be political. This is all about Jesus. This is about the church living and thriving and being faithful and loving well in our modern-day Babylon. That's why we're in this series going, okay, what does it look like now for the church? Not that it has changed, but it's an appropriate time for us to come back to some truths and realities to realize that this is not our true home. Our true citizenship is in heaven and we are here on a purpose, just like Israel, even though they were being called and and being exiled to Babylon, one, to purify them for their disobedience, but also there was a purpose to be used and played out through their lives there. They were exhorted to seek the welfare of the city and to pray to the Lord on their behalf. And so church, we have a duty to embrace regardless of what happens around us. And we have to stand firm and to love well. And this is hard, right? Especially when we face the pressure that comes against those who follow Jesus. When we're trying to live faithful in a culture that's going in a complete other direction. And we have to remind ourselves that the clash isn't between political parties. The clash isn't between flesh and blood. The reality is it's a clash between competing kingdoms, The kingdoms of this world, of this earth, is given temporary ownership or rulership to Satan and his cronies. And Jesus is entrusted and given authority to the church to build and become his kingdom here on earth. And so we see this playing out in our time. In fact, we're exhorted to be remindful of this in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul was saying to the church in Ephesus, like, listen, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So what I want to focus on today, last week we talked about how to love well. Today I want to start talking to you about how to be faithful in our modern day Babylon. How do we stand firm? Okay, so if you got a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me, Daniel chapter one, and we're gonna spend some time in this chapter this morning. I'm gonna read for us the first two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about that feeling of what it would be like to be under siege. But what I want to highlight here is just this idea of how they, not the idea, the fact that they stole the vessels of God from the temple in Jerusalem and placed those vessels into the temple of their God. And what that would have meant, like we got to remember the pain and the emotion of, the exe- of this exile. Like they were being told by false prophets before it came that God wouldn't do this. In fact, God was sending prophets like Habakkuk and Jeremiah to forewarn them that this is going to come because of disobedience. They're like, no, it's not going to happen. Jerusalem is the city of God where his people And then it happens. And they're competing with the false prophets and the true word of God. Like God said, my servant Nebuchadnezzar is going to do this and he's going to purify his people. And yet you need to seek the welfare. And it's it's hard to fathom this. Babylon is known as the personification of evil in scripture. How could God do this? I mean, this was a painful moment for the people of Israel. In fact, Psalm 137 really paints this picture of lament. In Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4, it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, or Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. From there our captors required us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I mean, this was a horrible time for them. Heart-wrenching. They can't make sense of what has happened unless you're placing your faith in God. And that's what we see with Daniel is that we see him making a clear distinction, knowing that God is in control of who's in control, that God has a higher plan, that God has a purpose for all of these things that are taking place. Over and over and over, the Babylonians are reminding the people of Israel, we won you lost. Our God is stronger. Your God is defeated. And that was the taunt and the mockery of taking the vessels of God and putting them up almost as their trophies into the temple of their God. Now, I was thinking long and hard how to maybe make this land home. How many of you are UT fans here? Okay. Like, come on, show those horns. How many of you die hard UT fans here? Die hard. Okay. All right. Now imagine for a moment that UT and AM were able to play a football game. And before that game, Texas A&M stole Bevo. This has happened before, okay? Now imagine this time they actually stole Bevo and I got a picture. And let's just say they brought him into the field and they decked him out with A&M garb. How would that make you feel at Longhorns? Not very good. It would be kind of like a taunt. How many of you Aggie fans are like, yeah. Like, it's a mass insult. It's this constant reminder of saying, you're defeated. Our God is stronger. We're right. You're wrong. In fact, your God is now going to have to bow down in homage to our God. I, I, this is a mass kick in your face. Okay, fine. You want to believe in your God. You want your little crutch. That's fine. Because just look at all of our trophies. We're the power on the earth. And if you remember back in those days, whatever kingdom was empowered by correlation meant their God was also the supreme God in the land. Your God is dead. We have these here just to remind you of that in case you ever forgot. Do you think maybe 
that the Israelites thought it was impossible to live faithful in this land? In light of all of the things, like how can we be true to God now? How can we follow through in all the things that God has asked us to do now? In fact, can you even imagine how difficult it would have been? Like, God, where were you? How could you let this happen? I thought we were your people. I thought Jerusalem was your city. I thought America was a Christian nation. How could God, you do this? And we have a hard time making sense of all these things. But listen, folks, none of that matters. Things on the outside, these external things don't change the reality of God's plans. I mean, you got to imagine how difficult it would felt because there's some moments in our lives when we look at our culture and the things that are happening around us, we go, man, it's impossible. It feels impossible to stay true to Jesus. Especially when we look at our youth and we think about our youth and all the things they have to face and encounter like, how can they stay true to Jesus? But here's the reality. Daniel tells us that it's absolutely possible. Absolutely possible. And without a doubt, there were some Israelites who completely gave in to the pressure in Babylon. There was a whole bunch of them that probably just bended the knee and went with the flow and completely just gave in. Absolutely, or some of them. But Daniel did not. And we have to be honest, he probably wasn't immune from thinking such thoughts like, man, how could God let this happen or how hard this was? But he quickly moved past those thoughts because he had faith in who God was. And that faith determined how he saw the circumstances around him. Daniel didn't allow the circumstances around him to determine who God was. It was his faith in God that allowed him to determine the circumstances and to see the circumstances. And that gave Daniel an anchor. And that anchor was his hope. And that's how he was able to stand firm. Friends, listen, you cannot stand firm in this culture without the hope of Jesus. You just can't. You have to have this anchor. You have to have this faith that just gets deep behind things into your heart. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension, he extends to us an anchor like none other. In fact, in Hebrews 6, verse 19, the, the author of Hebrews says it this way, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. If we believe in Jesus and we set that anchor, it is a sure and steadfast hope and is based upon who God is. And that determines and that influences everything around us. And that's how Daniel was able to stand firm. Friends, you have to know Jesus. You have to. A 40-minute sermon is insufficient for this. And that's why we strive to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. You have to continue to know him and to follow him. Faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the word of God. This is so important. And if you don't know who God is, how can you stand firm in hope? Jesus talked about this way in Matthew 7. He painted this picture of a man who built his house on the solid ground. And when the storms came, that house was able to stand. That's because he built his house on the solid foundation, on the word of God, of who Jesus was. That's the anchor. But then there was a man who built his home on shifting sand. That man who had good intentions. Storm came, 
house crumbled. It's one thing to say, Jesus is my anchor, but it's a whole nother thing for you to set that anchor. You have to set that anchor, not just believe things, like not just like mentally say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I know all these things. You actually have to start to live it out in obedience. You have to do what Daniel did, which was to prepare in advance a resolve of saying, I'm going to stand true. There came a moment in Daniel, we don't know when it was or where it was, but he purposed in his heart to not give in to not be defiled, to not panic, to not despair, to not compromise his convictions or his beliefs in God. There was some point in his life where he resolved that nothing would change his loyalty. Nothing could affect his heart. That no matter what comes, no matter what changes, his allegiance will always be true. He is my Lord. He is my King. And I'm going to give him a predetermined yes. And it's because of his grace and mercy, that God's grace and mercy, that Daniel is able to do this. And friends, that's encouraging to me because that just means I, I don't have to gut it up. Like it, I don't have to like kind of muster up that, that energy. It's by his grace. We start and stand by his grace and his grace alone. Paul urges Timothy in, in 2 Timothy a young pastor leading the church in Ephesus that's dealing with it, like false doctrine and division and things that are coming into it. And he reminds Timothy as a pastor, he says in uh, chapter two, verse one, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In our time, we need to be strengthened by God's grace. That's how we stand firm. And that is how we love well. We need to be reminded of his grace. We need to be reminded of the faith and the hope that we have in Jesus. Because the world we live in is very good, is excellent at getting people to assimilate into their ways. The world is very good at making disciples. And what we see in Daniel, what they try to do to the young leaders is the same thing that our culture still tries to do today. So let's look at verse three and seven, three through seven. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hadaniah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And a chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called, called Belteshar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. This is a very shrewd assimilation process that Babylon had. And they knew what they were doing. They took the first wave of the exile and they did it in waves. The first wave, they took about 50 to 75 of their young and upcoming leaders, leaders from noble families and who seemed to stand out and above the others. They took them and these, these youth, these 50 to 75 young and, young and upcoming leaders, they were anywhere between the ages of 12 and 18. Okay, so listen, middle schoolers, high schoolers, listen. 
This was you. Nebuchadnezzar would have taken you from Jerusalem and it would have began to isolate you from your family, to isolate you from the values that the church and your family is trying to embed into your life, to isolate you from the things of God. And they're going to take you in underneath their wing to indoctrinate you. To say, you, yeah, you are a Jew and yes, your God is Yahweh, but listen, this is how we do things here. They wanted to infiltrate and to begin to build their culture by infiltrating and convincing and discipling their youth. Does that sound familiar? It's no different today. Isolate them from God's influence. Put them into a culture that's not like the one that is of God, where seeking God is ignorative, where prayer is mocked at and scripture is ridiculed. And not only that, like, look at this. They were put into a three-year program, a three-year state-sponsored school curriculum program that was full of the occult, full of astrology and astronomy, full of incantations and omens and all these types of other things. Learning the language, learning the values and the ways and the methodologies and the philosophies and the ideals of the Babylonians for three years. For three years to remind them, oh, hey, you thought your God was God, but you're here. Remember the vessels, look, our, we won, you lost. So stop thinking that way. Abandon the ways of your fathers. Our ways are right. Become like us. Think like us. Value like us. They were given new names. They were seeking to confuse their identity. It wasn't just a f little fun thing they did. They're like, hey, let's give you a Babylonian name. No, no, no. Names back then had significant meaning. It, it, it falls deaf on our ears a little bit. But like when Daniel was named Daniel, that was a parental blessing over their life. And so they were giving Jewish names that were exemplifying the faith and the blessings in their life. And now they're going to rename them in order to confuse their identity. So Daniel's name means God is my judge. So anytime Daniel was called that when, for the first 16 years, God is my judge, he's being reminded of who he is. And now his name is Belteshazzar, which basically means Bell's prince, Satan's boy. Imagine that. You're a teenager and all of a sudden your name gets changed. And I'm pretty sure it's a little bit of mockery. And it goes without saying, and I'm not trying to be crude, but it's implied in the text, that not only were they isolated from God's influence, that they were indoctrinated with the worldly system of the Babylonians, their identity was confused, and more than likely, if you were a male, you were castrated. How can you live faithful in a foreign land? Daniel shows us exactly how to do that. Let's look at verse eight, because this is the key. But Daniel resolved. I want you to say that word with me, okay? But Daniel resolved. Now, come on. All, like, that was only, only the first three rows. Now, I'm doing this just to wake you up, okay? And actually, I'm doing this too to humor myself, okay? Say it with me now. But Daniel that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not to defile himself. I mean, up to this point, okay, like you got to imagine this, you got to feel this. Up to this point, Daniel and his three friends have shown no outward resistance to the assimilation of the Babylonian culture. None. Take us away from our home. You call me what you want. But here, all of a sudden, when it comes to steak and wine, they draw the line. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read this, I'm like, dude, this is the best part of the deal, Daniel. Okay, like you just got ripped away from your family and your friends, the, your people, your city is there. You don't even know if your mom and dad are still alive. Like you don't know your name got changed and now you're being mocked and you might have like, just imagine. But here, this is the opportunity when you actually get to enjoy something and you're gonna draw the line here. You didn't refuse magic school, Daniel. You didn't mind being torn away from your family and you don't mind having your name changed to moon god boy. But steak and wine, here's the line. Like it might sound completely ridiculous to us, but Daniel had something in his heart. He goes, if I would have done this, it would have compromised the resolve that I made. What does Daniel actually hope to accomplish by his determined stand? Why has he chosen this area of his diet as the moral and theological line over which he refuses to step? Because he didn't put up a fight when it came to the education. He didn't put up any resistance to the name change. Was it because of his dietary laws that he wanted to be kosher? Because that was a big deal in their diet to eat food that was clean, don't associate with anything that's unclean. But he even said no to the wine, which we know from scripture that wine was kosher. He could have easily had it, but he said no to that. So it could have been, it might not have been. We really don't know. Was it because he knew that this food was offered to idols? Probably, and we know that God has a strong view about eating food that's being sacrificed or offered to idols. It's participating in idol worship. That very well could have been part of it. Could have been, mainly Daniel was saying, I want to show God off through my life that if there's any success in my life that nobody could point to say it was Babylonian's influence in my life that made me successful or prominent. Was that a reason why he chose to not eat the food? We don't really know his motives. And to be honest, it doesn't really even matter. What matters is this word resolved. He drew a line in the sand ahead of time. He purposed in his heart ahead of time to not defile himself. Sure, I will go through all of your classes. In fact, I will be the best student in magic. I will be the top in the class. I will mess up the curve. Like he was that, like that, I will do it, not a problem. Go ahead and call me whatever you want to call me. But here in my heart, you cannot touch this. You can't touch what's in here. Education is just education. If we have a foundation of faith and if we have set an anchor on the foundation of Jesus, we can filter all of that through, can't we? Like what's wrong with studying evolution? Like nothing. 
And it doesn't mean we have to believe it or any other theories and things that are out there. It doesn't mean we have to agree with it. It doesn't mean we have to let it influence us, but it's okay to understand the theory and how it works. This is an external thing. It can't touch your heart. It has no influence on your heart unless you don't have a foundation in who Jesus is. And then you're susceptible to persuasion. Nor can a name change. You can call me whatever it is you want to call me. You can place any identity on me, but I know who I am. And I know whose I am. You can take my name away from me, but you can't take my title away. You can't touch my conviction. You can't change the fact that I'm God's son, God's daughter. I have already resolved on this before any promotion you give me, before any temptation, before any captivity, before any of this came. I resolved this. This is my conviction. This is where I stand. This is the line I drew. I will not cross it, nor will I even flirt with it. Listen, friends, resolve is not good intentions. Don't confuse resolve with good intentions. Because resolve is basically saying, it's like, I will do this. When this comes, when this comes up against me, this is what I will do. Good intention says, I would like to do this, but we'll see what happens. Church, don't be a wet noodle. You've got to have resolve. You've you got to decide right now where and how you're going to build your life. You've got to go, where am I going to set this anchor? You have to choose to build your convictions and your values off of who God is and off of God's word. You have to do it now, not later. And if somehow you convinced yourself that you will choose it later, friends, listen, later will never come. Daniel didn't all of a sudden resolve this at that moment. This was something he predetermined ahead of time. And you want to know why this is so important? It's not just so that we have good conduct and good morality. Like that's important to have that resolve to keep us from sin and being holy. Absolutely. But there's something else at stake. Our resolve displays God. Daniel's resolve showcased God. That is important. Because the greatest good we can do in the city, in the area that God has placed us, is to show off Jesus. And we do that by being salt and light. I wonder if Daniel ever thought about it this way. I wonder when Daniel ever went into the temple of Marduk or Tiamat, the Babylonian gods, that when he saw the vessels of his God in there, I wonder if he thought in itself, those vessels are still holy. Those vessels are still apart, even though they're in a demonic temple. They're still holy. Regardless of their situation and circumstance, those vessels are still set apart. I wonder if Daniel thought to himself, I am God's vessel. Even though I am in Babylon and in an evil empire, I will still choose to be set apart. I still choose to be his. I still choose to be used by him. Paul said to Timothy this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And in verse 15, he says to him, do your best to present yourself to God. It's almost as if Paul is telling Timothy, saying, you have a choice. You can choose what kind of vessel you're going to be in your modern day Babylon. You can choose to be a vessel that's set aside for honorable purposes or dishonorable purposes. What are you going to choose? Because if you want to be set aside for honorable purposes, useful to God, to be used by God, you have to get rid of the things that would defile you. You got to deal with the issues of sin and compromise. So here's the question I want to ask you. What kind of vessel do you want to be today? Do you want to be a vessel that is set aside for honorable purposes to be useful to God in our modern day Babylon? Or do you want to be a wet noodle and just be, eh? How are you presenting yourself to God? Are you correctly handling the word of truth? Not just reading it for intellectual purposes. Are you doing that so that way it also shapes and transforms your heart and your mind? Are there areas in your life that you're compromising and you know it? Areas where you're flirting with it? With sin? Are you distracted? Too busy to be faithful to Jesus? Do you find yourself saying, I know I should be in God's word more, but I'm just so busy. But yet we consume hours upon hours upon hours of TV, waste so much time scrolling up, scrolling to the side, hashtagging, memeing, getting caught up in internet controversies and conflicts and arguments. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Notice, there's people who've gone before you who ran a race. Notice that you have a purpose to run. But notice there's two things that trip us up. The weights and the sin. The sin, that's pretty easy. If it's not true to God's word, it's a sin. If it causes rebellion and unholiness, it's a sin. Got it. But the weights, that's tricky. Things that slow you down. Things that distract you, that pull you away, that consume your time and energy that might not be beneficial to the race that God has called you to run. You are exhorted to throw those weights off. Friends, you have a race to run in our modern day Babylon today. We as the church, we have a purpose to, to embrace here. What kind of vessel do you want to be used as? Do you want to run the race? Run lighter. Run freer. Deal with the things in your life that distract, pull you down, and cause you to sin. You have to resolve. And Daniel's resolve is what allowed him to stand firm. And he loved well. Because the way we see him interacting with Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, and his number two in command was super shrewd and super gentle and very respectful. 
give us a 10-day trial, a vegetarian diet. And if we're not fatter in 10 days, we'll eat the meat and drink the wine. Like Daniel was being bold here because he knew what he was asking. He was to find the king as a slave. That's worthy of execution. But he did it in such a way where he was shrewd as a snake and innocent as a dove. And he was given the opportunity. Daniel wanted to showcase his God. This was a miracle in the making right here. Because when he got the opportunity, him and his companions had the opportunity to go on a 10-day vegetable diet. They appeared to be fatter. I've been eating vegetables for the last seven weeks. I ain't looking fatter. I know I look good. I know. I'm just kidding. But think about that. That was so lame. And so, Sorry. If you were to go on a diet, steak, delicacies, cake, and wine, or vegetables, which one do you think would make you fatter in 10 days? Not the vegetables. All of a sudden, God was showing honor, and by Daniel's resolve, God was honoring that, and he was showcasing God through this. There's no other way to make sense of this. Daniel's obedience, my friends, listen, when we draw a line in the sand, it's not to be confrontational. When we draw a line in the sand to stand firm, what we're ultimately doing is showing people God. Showing people who he is by how we live, by the words we say, our faith and our obedience. And what we're going to see next week and the weeks to come is how God shows up over and over and over when God's people choose to stand firm and to love well. How do you build this resolve? And this is what I, how I want to end. You have to purpose in your heart right now to obey God. You have to purpose right now that come what may, I'm going to obey him. You have to be resolved. You have to decide where that line is. And I know this is tricky. And I know like some of you are going, what about the gray areas? If we ask for wisdom, God will give us wisdom in those areas. So here's what I want to do to end this time. I want to encourage you, if you want to be like Daniel, to stand firm, I just want to, just in a symbolic I want to be a vessel that is set aside for honorable purposes I just want to encourage you to stand, okay? So if that's you and this is what you want in your life in this time right now, I want to encourage you to stand. And as you stand, I'm going to ask, I'm going to pray a blessing over you. And what I want you to do is go, hands out, God, I'm giving you my predetermined yes now. It's just a symbolic thing. And you're just going to say in your heart, I'm drawing the line. I'm going to stand firm. Lord Jesus, I pray for your children here. Lord, who you are working in their hearts and in their lives, God, I pray that you would honor their resolve. God, I pray that you would give them the courage to stand firm in their modern-day Babylon. 
Lord, I pray that you would honor them in this moment that they're saying in their hearts that they want to be a vessel that is set aside for honorable purposes. And so God, I ask that if there's things in their lives that are impure or areas where maybe they've compromised, that by your spirit, you would make that clear and that you would start to lead them in a path of repentance. Lord, I pray through your spirit that areas where they're navigating gray areas of obedience and faithfulness to you, God, that you would make it very clear what it is that you're calling them to do. Lord, I pray for us as a church that through our resolve to follow you, to be salt and light for you, God, I pray that through this church, there'll be a wave of your goodness, of your salvation running through the city of Austin, running through wherever your people are at. God, we pray for revival. We pray for people to come to know Jesus. We pray for those who are held captive to the enemy's lies. Lord, we understand that you've called a church to be your hands and your feet and your body. God, I pray that you would align our hearts and our purpose to be true to the mission, to live out the mission that you've called us to. To continue to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us the courage to be salt and light. Lord, I pray for my friends out here who maybe haven't set the anchor, the hope that we have in you, the living hope we have in you. Lord, I pray that they would do that. I pray for any of my brothers and sisters out here who maybe have been wandering away, trapped in sin, or maybe have been compromised and flirting with temptation or whatever it is. God, I pray that your spirit would woo them back, that they would come back receive the forgiveness, embrace your grace and mercy. God, I ask that today there would be a a hallmark moment in our hearts and lives that we as a church would stand together and say we resolve as a church to be courageous for Jesus, to stand firm, and to love well. God, would you use these words in this last song to minister to our hearts, God? We want you to be on display. Come what may, Jesus, would you be glorified in Christ's name.